Hello, and welcome to Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, the podcast. Written by Elias Ryudkowski, read by Inyash Brodsky, based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Second half of Chapter 17, Locating the Hypothesis. Thursday. There must have been something about Thursdays in Hogwarts. It was 5.32 p.m. on Thursday afternoon, and Harry was standing next to Professor Flitwick in front of the great stone gargoyle that guarded the entrance to the headmaster's office. No sooner had he made it back from Professor McGonagall's office to the Ravenclaw study rooms that one of the students told him to report to Professor Flitwick's office. And there, Harry had learned that Dumbledore wanted to speak to him. Harry, feeling rather apprehensive, had asked Professor Flitwick if the headmaster had said what this was about. Professor Flitwick had shrugged in a helpless sort of way. Apparently, Dumbledore had said that Harry was far too young to invoke the words of power and madness. Happy, happy, boom, boom, swamp, swamp, swamp? Harry had thought, but not said aloud. Please don't worry too much, Mr. Potter, squeaked Professor Flitwick from somewhere around Harry's shoulder level. Harry was grateful for Professor Flitwick's gigantic puffy beard. It was hard getting used to a professor who was not only shorter than him, but spoke in a higher-pitched voice. Headmaster Dumbledore may seem a little odd, or a lot odd, or even extremely odd, but he has never hurt a student in the slightest, and I don't believe he ever will. Professor Flitwick gave Harry an encouraging smile. Just keep that in mind at all times, and you'll be sure not to panic. This was not helping. Good luck squeaked Professor Flitwig, and leaned over to the gargoyle and said something that Harry somehow failed to hear at all. Of course, the password wouldn't be much good if you could hear someone saying it. And the stone gargoyle walked aside with a very natural and ordinary movement that Harry found rather shocking, since the gargoyle still looked like solid, immovable stone the whole time. Behind the gargoyle was a set of slowly revolving spiral stairs. There was something disturbingly hypnotic about it, and even more disturbing was that revolving the spiral ought not to take you anywhere. Up you go! Harry rather nervously stepped onto the spiral and found himself, for some reason that his brain couldn't seem to visualize at all, moving upward. The gargoyle thudded back into place behind him, and the spiral stairs kept turning, and Harry kept being higher up, and after a rather dizzying time, Harry found himself in front of an oak door with a brass griffin knocker. Harry reached out and turned the doorknob. The door swung open. And Harry saw the most interesting room he'd ever seen in his life. There were tiny metal mechanisms that whirred or ticked or slowly changed shape or emitted little puffs of smoke. There were dozens of mysterious fluids in dozens of oddly shaped containers, all bubbling, boiling, oozing, changing color, or forming into interesting shapes that vanished half a second after you saw them. There were things that looked like clocks with many hands, inscribed with numbers or in unrecognizable languages. There was a bracelet bearing a reticular crystal that sparkled with a thousand colors, and a bird perched atop a golden platform, and a wooden cup filled with what looked like blood, and a statue of a falcon encrusted in black enamel. The wall was all hung with pictures of people sleeping, and the sorting hat was casually poised on a hat rack that was also holding two umbrellas and three red slippers for left feet. In the midst of all the chaos was a clean, black oaken desk. Before the desk was an oaken stool, and behind the desk was a well-cushioned throne containing Albus Percival Wolfric Brian Dumbledore, 
who was adorned with a long silver beard, a hat like a squashed giant mushroom, and what looked to muggle eyes like three layers of bright pink pajamas. Dumbledore was smiling, and his bright eyes twinkled with a mad intensity. With some trepidation, Harry seated himself in front of the desk. The door swung shut behind him with a loud thunk. Hello, Harry, said Dumbledore. Hello, Headmaster, Harry replied. So they were on a first-name basis? Would Dumbledore now say to call him... Please, Harry. Headmaster sounds so formal. Just call me Heh for short. I'll be sure to, Heh. There was a slight pause. Do you know, you're the first person who's ever taken me up on that. Ah, Harry said. He tried to control his voice despite the sudden sinking feeling in his stomach. I'm sorry, I, uh, Headmaster. You told me to do it, so I did. Please, said Dumbledore cheerfully. And there's no call to be so worried. I won't launch you out of a window just because you make one mistake. I'll give you plenty of warnings first if you're doing something wrong. Besides, what matters isn't how people talk to you, it's what they think of you. He's never hurt a student. Just keep remembering that and you'll be sure not to panic. Dumbledore drew forth a small metal case and flipped it open, showing some small yellow lumps. Lemon drop? And no thank you, heh? Does slipping a student LSD count as hurting them, or does that fall into the category of harmless fun? You, um, said something about my being too young to invoke the words of power and madness? That you most certainly are. Thankfully, the words of power and madness were lost seven centuries ago, and no one has the slightest idea what they are anymore. It was just a little remark. Ah, Harry said. He was aware that his mouth was hanging open. Why did you call me here, then? Why? Dumbledore repeated. Huh. Harry, if I went around all day asking why I do things, I'd never have time to get a single thing done. I'm quite a busy person, you know. Harry nodded, smiling. Yes, it was a very impressive list. Headmaster of Hogwarts, Chief Warlock of the Wizengamot, and Supreme Mugwump of the International Confederation of Wizards. Sorry to ask, but I was wondering, is it possible to get more than six hours if you use more than one time-turner? because it's pretty impressive if you're doing all that on just 30 hours a day. There was another slight pause, during which Harry went on smiling. He was a little apprehensive, actually a lot apprehensive, but once it had become clear that Dumbledore was deliberately messing with him, something within him absolutely refused to sit and take it like a defenseless lump. I'm afraid time doesn't like being stretched out too much, Dumbledore said after the slight pause. And yet we ourselves seem to be a little too large for it. And so, it is a constant struggle to fit our lives into time. Indeed, Harry said with grave solemnity. That's why it's best to come to our points quickly. For a moment, Harry wondered if he'd gone too far. Then Dumbledore chuckled. Straight to the point it shall be. The headmaster leaned forward, tilting his squashed mushroom hat and brushing his beard against the desk. Harry... This Monday you did something that should have been impossible even with a time-turner. Or rather, impossible with only a time-turner. Where did those two pies come from, I wonder? A jolt of adrenaline shot through Harry. He'd done that using the Cloak of Invisibility, the one that had been given him in a Christmas box along with a note, and that note had said, 
If Dumbledore saw a chance to possess one of the Deathly Hollows, he would never allow it to escape his grasp. A natural thought is that since none of the first years present were able to cast such a spell, someone else was present, and yet unseen. And if no one could see them, why, it would be easy enough for them to throw the pies. One might further suspect that since you had a time-turner, you were the invisible one, and that since the spell of disillusionment is far beyond your current abilities, you had an invisibility cloak. Dumbledore smiled conspiratorially. Am I on the right track so far, Harry? Harry was frozen. He had the feeling that an outright lie would not at all be wise, and possibly not the least bit helpful, and he couldn't think of anything else to say. Dumbledore waved a friendly hand. Don't worry, Harry. You haven't done anything wrong. Invisibility cloaks aren't against the rules. I suppose they are rare enough that no one ever got around to putting them on the list. But really, I was wondering something else entirely. Oh? said Harry, in the most normal voice he could manage. Dumbledore's eyes shone with enthusiasm. You see, Harry, after you've been through a few adventures, you tend to catch the hang of these things. You start to see the pattern, hear the rhythm of the world. You begin to harbor suspicions before the moment of revelation. You are the boy who lived, and somehow an invisibility cloak has made its way into your hands only four days after you discovered our magical Britain. Such cloaks are not for sale in Diagon Alley, but there is one which might find its own way to a destined wearer. And so I cannot help but wonder if by some strange chance you have found not just an invisibility cloak, but the cloak of invisibility, one of the three deathly hallows, and reputed to hide the wearer from the gaze of death himself. Dumbledore's gaze was bright and eager. May I see it, Harry? Harry swallowed. There was a full flood of adrenaline in his system now, and it was entirely useless. This was the most powerful wizard in the world, and there was no way he could make it at the door, and there was nowhere in Hogwarts for him to hide if he did. He was about to lose the cloak that had been passed down through the potters for who knew how long. Slowly, Dumbledore leaned back into his high chair. The bright light had gone out of his eyes, and he looked puzzled and a little sorrowful. Harry, if you don't want to... You can just say no. I can? Yes, Harry, said Dumbledore. His voice sounded sad now, and worried. It seems that you're afraid of me, Harry. May I ask what I've done to earn your distrust? Harry swallowed. Is there some way you can swear a binding magical oath that you won't take my cloak? Dumbledore shook his head slowly. Unbreakable vows are not to be used lightly. And besides, Harry... If you did not already know the spell, you would have only my word that the spell was binding. Yet surely you realize that I do not need your permission to see the cloak. I am powerful enough to draw it forth myself, mokeskin pouch or no. Dumbledore's face was very grave. But this I will not do. The cloak is yours, Harry. I will not seize it from you, not even to look at it for just a moment unless you decide to show it to me. That is a promise and an oath. Should I need to prohibit you from using it on the school grounds, I will require you to go to your vault at Gringotts and store it there. 
Ah, Harry said. He swallowed hard, trying to calm the flood of adrenaline and think reasonably. He took the mokeskin pouch off his belt. If you really don't need my permission, then you have it. Harry held out the pouch to Dumbledore and bit down hard on his lip, sending that signal to himself in case he was obliviated afterward. The old wizard reached into the pouch, and without saying any word of retrieval, drew forth the cloak of invisibility. Ah, oh, I was right. He poured the shimmering black velvet mesh through his hand. Centuries old and still as perfect as the day it was made. We have lost much of our art over the years, and now I cannot make such a thing myself. No one can. I can feel the power of it like an echo in my mind, like a song forever being sung without anyone to hear it. The wizard looked up from the cloak. Do not sell it. Do not give it to anyone as a possession. Think twice before you show it to anyone, and ponder three times again before you reveal that it is a deathly hallow. Treat it with respect, for this is indeed a thing of power. For a moment, Dumbledore's face grew wistful. And then he handed the cloak back to Harry. Harry put it back in his pouch. Dumbledore's face was grave once more. May I ask again, Harry, how you came to distrust me so? Suddenly, Harry felt rather ashamed. There was a note with the cloak, Harry said in a small voice. It said that you would try to take the cloak from me if you knew. I don't know who left the note, though. I really don't. I see. Well, Harry, I won't impugn the motives of whoever left you that note. Who knows, but that they themselves may have had the best of good intentions. They did give you the cloak, after all. Harry nodded, impressed by Dumbledore's charity, and abashed by the sharp contrast with his own attitude. The old wizard went on. But you and I are both game pieces of the same color, I think. The boy who finally defeated Voldemort, and the old man who held him off long enough for you to save the day. I will not hold your caution against you, Harry. We must all do our best to be wise. I will only ask that you think twice and ponder three times again the next time someone tells you to distrust me. I'm sorry, Harry said. He felt wretched at this point. He just told off Gandalf, essentially, and Dumbledore's kindness was only making him feel worse. I shouldn't have distrusted you. Alas, Harry, in this world... The old wizard shook his head. I cannot even say you were unwise. You did not know me, and in truth there are some at Hogwarts who you would do well not to trust. Perhaps even some you call friends. Harry swallowed. That sounded rather ominous. Like who? Dumbledore stood up from his chair and began examining one of his instruments, a dial with eight hands of varying lengths. After a few moments, the old wizard spoke again. He probably seems to you quite charming. Polite to you, at least. Well-spoken, maybe even admiring, always ready with a helpful hand, a favor, a word of advice. Oh, Draco Malfoy, Harry said, feeling rather relieved that it wasn't Hermione or something. Oh, no, 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 no. You've got it all wrong. He's not turning me. I'm turning him. Dumbledore froze where he was peering at the dial. Your what? I'm going to turn Draco Malfoy from the dark side. You know, make him a good guy. Dumbledore straightened and turned to Harry. 
He was wearing one of the most astonished expressions Harry had ever seen on anyone, let alone someone with a long silver beard. Are you certain, said the old wizard after a moment, that whatever goodness you think you see in him is not just wishful thinking, Harry? I fear that what you see is only the lure, the bait. And not likely. I mean, if he's trying to disguise himself as a good guy, he's incredibly bad at it. This isn't a question of Draco coming up to me and being all charming and me deciding that he must have a hidden core of goodness deep down. I'm targeting him for redemption specifically because he's the heir to House Malfoy. And if you had to pick one person to redeem, it would obviously be him. Dumbledore's left eye twitched. You're trying to plant the seeds of love and kindness into Draco's heart because you expect the heir of Malfoy to prove valuable to you? Not just to me! Harry said indignantly, to all of Magical Britain, if this works out. And he'll have a happier and mentally healthier life himself. Look, I don't have enough time to turn everyone away from the dark side, and I've got to ask where the light can gain the most advantage the fastest. Dumbledore started laughing, laughing a lot harder than Harry would expect, almost howling. It seemed positively undignified. An ancient and powerful wizard ought to chuckle in deep, booming tones, not laugh so hard he was gasping for breath. Harry had once literally fallen out of his chair while watching the Marx Brothers movie Duck Soup, and that was how hard Dumbledore was laughing now. It's not that funny, Harry said after a while. He was starting to worry about Dumbledore's sanity again. Dumbledore got himself under control again with a visible effort. Oh, Harry, one symptom of the disease called wisdom is that you begin laughing at things that no one else thinks are funny. Because when you're wise, Harry, you start getting the jokes. The old wizard wiped tears away from his eyes. Ah me, oft evil will shall evil mar indeed, in very deed. Harry's brain took a moment to place the familiar words. Hey, that's a Tolkien quote! Gandalf says that! Theoden, actually. You're Muggleborn? Harry said in shock. I'm afraid not, said Dumbledore, smiling again. I was born seventy years before that book was published, dear child. But it seems that my muggle-born students tend to think alike in certain ways. I have accumulated no fewer than twenty copies of The Lord of the Rings and three sets of Tolkien's entire collected works, and I shall treasure every one of them. Dumbledore drew his wand and held it up and struck a pose. You cannot... Pass! How does that look? Eh, Harry said, in something approaching complete brain shutdown. I think you're missing a Balrock. And the pink pajamas and squashed mushroom hat were not helping in the slightest. I see. Dumbledore sighed and glumly sheathed the wand in his belt. I fear there have been precious few Balrogs in my life of late. Nowadays it's all meetings of the Wizengamot where I must try desperately to prevent any work from getting done, and formal dinners where foreign politicians compete to see who can be the most obstinate fool. And being mysterious at people, knowing things I have no way of knowing, making cryptic statements which can only be understood in hindsight, and all the other small ways in which powerful wizards amuse themselves after they have left the part of the pattern that allows them to be heroes. Speaking of which, Harry, I have a certain something to give you. 
something which belonged to your father. You do? Gosh, who would have figured? Yes, indeed. I suppose it's a little predictable, isn't it? His face turned solemn. Nonetheless. Dumbledore went back to his desk and sat down, pulling out one of the drawers as he did so. He reached in using both arms and, straining slightly, pulled a rather large and heavy-looking object out of the drawer, which he then deposited on his oaken desk with a huge thunk. This was your father's rock. Harry stared at it. It was light gray, discolored, irregularly shaped, sharp-edged, and very much a plain, old, ordinary, large rock. Dumbledore had deposited it so that it rested on the widest available cross-section, but it still wobbled unstably on his desk. This is a joke, right? It is not, said Dumbledore, shaking his head and looking very serious. I took this from the ruins of James and Lily's home in Godric's Hollow, where also I found you, and I have kept it from then until now, against the day when I could give it to you. In the mixture of hypotheses that served as Harry's model of the world, Dumbledore's insanity was rapidly rising in probability. But there was still a substantial amount of probability allocated to other alternatives. Uh, is it a magical rock? Not so far as I know. But I advise you with the greatest possible stringency to keep it close about your person at all times. All right. Dumbledore was probably insane, but if he wasn't, well, it would be just too embarrassing to get in trouble from ignoring the advice of the inscrutable old wizard. That had to be like number four on the list of top 100 obvious failure modes. Harry stepped forward and put his hands on the rock, trying to find some angle from which to lift it without cutting himself. I'll put it in my pouch then. Dumbledore frowned. That may not be close enough to your person. And what if your mokeskin pouch is lost or stolen? You think I should just carry a big rock everywhere I go? Dumbledore gave Harry a serious look. That might prove wise. Um, Harry said. It looked rather heavy. I'd think the other students would tend to ask me questions about that. Tell them I ordered you to do it. No one will question that, since they all think I'm insane. His face was still perfectly serious. Er, uh, to be honest, if you go around ordering your students to carry large rocks, I can kind of see why people would think that. Ah, oh, Harry, said Dumbledore. The old wizard gestured a sweep of one hand that seemed to take in all the mysterious instruments around the room. When we are young, we believe that we know everything, and so we believe that if we see no explanation for something, then no explanation exists. When we are older, we realize that the whole universe works by a rhythm and a reason, even if we ourselves do not know it. It is only our own ignorance which appears to us as insanity. Reality is always lawful, said Harry, even if we don't know the law. Precisely, Harry. To understand this, and I see you do understand this, is the essence of wisdom. So why do I have to carry this rock, exactly? I can't think of a reason, actually. You can't? Dumbledore nodded. But just because I can't think of a reason doesn't mean there is no reason. The instruments ticked on. Okay, said Harry. I'm not even sure I should be saying this, 
But that is simply not the correct way to deal with our admitted ignorance of how the universe works. Isn't it? said the old wizard, looking surprised and disappointed. Harry had the feeling this conversation was not going to work out in his favor, but he carried on regardless. No. I don't even know if that fallacy has an official name, but if I had to make one up myself, it would be privileging the hypothesis, or something like that. How can I put this formally? Um, suppose you had a million boxes, and only one of the boxes contained a diamond. And you had a box full of diamond detectors, and each diamond detector always went off in the presence of a diamond, and went off half the time on boxes that didn't have a diamond. If you ran 20 detectors over all the boxes, you'd have, on average, one false candidate and one true candidate left. And then it would just take one or two more detectors before you were left with the one true candidate. The point being that when there are lots of possible answers, most of the evidence you need goes into just locating the true hypothesis out of millions of possibilities, bringing it to your attention in the first place. The amount of evidence you need to judge between two or three plausible candidates is much smaller by comparison. So if you just jump ahead with that evidence and promote one particular possibility to the focus of your attention, you're skipping over most of the work. Like, you live in a city where there's a million people, and there's a murder, and a detective says, well, we've got no evidence at all, so have we considered the possibility that Mortimer Snodgrass did it? Did he? said Dumbledore. No, said Harry, but it later turns out that the murderer had black hair, and Mortimer has black hair, so everyone's like, ah... Looks like Mortimer did it after all. So it's unfair to Mortimer for the police to promote him to their attention without having good reasons already in hand to suspect him. When there are lots of possibilities, most of the work goes into just locating the true answer, starting to pay attention to it. You don't need proof or the sort of official evidence that scientists or courts demand, but you need some sort of hint. And that hint has to discriminate that particular possibility from the millions of others. Otherwise, you can't just pluck the right answer out of thin air. You can't even pluck a possibility worth thinking about out of thin air. And there's got to be a million other things I could do besides carrying around my father's rock. Just because I'm ignorant about the universe doesn't mean that I'm unsure about how I should reason in the presence of my uncertainty. The laws for thinking with probabilities are no less iron than the laws that govern old-fashioned logic, and what you just did is not allowed. Harry paused. Unless, of course, you have some hint you're not mentioning? Ah, said Dumbledore. He tapped his cheek, looking thoughtful. An interesting argument, certainly. But doesn't it break down at the point where you make an analogy between a million potential murderers, only one of them who committed the murder, and taking one out of many possible courses of action, when many possible courses of action may all be wise? I do not say that carrying your father's rock is the one best possible course of action, only that it is wiser to do than not. Dumbledore once again reached into the same desk drawer he had accessed earlier, this time seeming to root around inside it. Or at least his arm seemed to be moving. I will remark, Dumbledore said, while Harry was still trying to sort out how to reply to this completely unexpected rejoinder. That it is a common misconception of Ravenclaws, that all the smart children are sorted there, leaving none for the other houses. This is not so. Being sorted to Ravenclaw indicates that you are driven by your desire to know things, which is not at all the same quality as being intelligent. The wizard was smiling as he bent over the drawer. Nonetheless, you do seem rather intelligent. 
less like an ordinary young hero and more like a young, mysterious, ancient wizard. I think I may have been taking the wrong approach with you, Harry, and that you may be able to understand things that few others could grasp. So I shall be daring and offer you a certain other heirloom. You don't mean... <gasps> My father owned another rock? Excuse me. I am still older and more mysterious than you, and if there are any revelations to be made, then I will do the revealing, thank you. Oh, where is that thing? Dumbledore reached down further into the desk drawer, and still further. His head and shoulders and whole torso disappeared inside until only his hips and legs were sticking out, as though the desk drawer was eating him. Harry couldn't help but wonder just how much stuff was in there and what the complete inventory would look like. Finally, Dumbledore rose back up out of the drawer, holding the objective of his search, which he set down on the desk alongside the rock. It was a used, ragged-edged, worn-spined textbook. Intermediate Potion Making by Libatius Borage. There was a picture of a smoking vial on the cover. This, Dumbledore intoned, was your mother's fifth-year potion textbook. Which I am to carry with me at all times. Which holds a terrible secret. A secret whose revelation could prove so disastrous that I must ask you to swear. And I do require you to swear it seriously, Harry. Whatever you may think of all this, never to tell anyone or anything else. Harry considered his mother's fifth-year potions textbook, which, apparently, held a terrible secret. The problem was that Harry did take oaths like that very seriously. Any vow was an unbreakable vow if made by the right sort of person, and... I'm feeling thirsty, Harry said, and that is not at all a good sign. Dumbledore entirely failed to ask any questions about this cryptic statement. Do you swear, Harry? said Dumbledore. His eyes gazed intently into Harry's. Otherwise, I cannot tell you. Yes, I swear. That was the trouble with being a Ravenclaw. You couldn't refuse an offer like that, or your curiosity would eat you alive, and everyone else knew it. And I swear in turn that what I am about to tell you is the truth. Dumbledore opened the book, seemingly at random, and Harry leaned in to see. Do you see these notes? Dumbledore said in a voice so low that it was almost a whisper. Written in the margins of the book? Harry squinted slightly. The yellowing pages seemed to be describing something called a potion of eagle splendor, many of the ingredients being items that Harry didn't recognize at all and whose names didn't appear to derive from English. Scrawled in the margin was a handwritten annotation saying, I wonder what would happen if you used Thestral blood here instead of blueberries. And immediately beneath that was a reply in different handwriting. You'd get sick for weeks and maybe die. I see them. What about them? Dumbledore pointed to the second scrawl. The ones in this handwriting were written by your mother. And the ones in this handwriting... Moving his finger to indicate the first scrawl... Were written by me. I would turn myself invisible and sneak into her dorm room while she was sleeping. Lily thought one of her friends was writing them, and they had the most amazing fights. This was the exact point at which Harry realized that the headmaster of Hogwarts was, in fact, crazy. Dumbledore was looking at him with a serious expression. Do you understand the implications of what I have just told you, Harry? 
Eh, Harry said. His voice seemed to be stuck. Sorry, I... not really. Oh well, said Dumbledore, and sighed. I suppose your intelligence has limits after all, then. It seems I was greatly premature in my enthusiasm. Shall we all just pretend I didn't say anything incriminating? Harry rose from his chair, wearing a fixed smile. Of course. You know, it's actually getting rather late in the day, and I'm a bit hungry, so I should be going down to dinner, really. And Harry made a beeline for the door. The doorknob entirely failed to turn. You wound me, Harry, said Dumbledore's voice in quiet tones that were coming from right behind him. Do you not at least realize what I have told you is a sign of trust? Harry slowly turned around. In front of him was a very powerful and very insane wizard with a long silver beard, a hat like a squashed giant mushroom, and wearing what looked to muggle eyes like three layers of bright pink pajamas. Behind him was a door that didn't seem to be working at the moment. Dumbledore was looking rather saddened and weary, like he wanted to lean on a wizard's staff he didn't have. Really? You try anything new instead of following the same pattern every time for a hundred and ten years, and people start running away. The old wizard shook his head in sorrow. I'd hoped for better from you, Harry Potter. I'd heard that your own friends also think you mad. I know they are mistaken. Will you not believe the same of me? Please open the door, Harry said, his voice trembling. If you ever want me to trust you again, open the door. There was the sound behind him of a door opening. There were more things I planned to say to you. And if you leave now, you will not know what they are. Sometimes Harry absolutely hated being a Ravenclaw. He's never hurt a student, said Harry's Gryffindor side. Just keep remembering that and you'll be sure not to panic. You're not going to run away just because things are getting interesting, are you? You can't just walk out on the headmaster, said the Hufflepuff part. What if he starts deducting house points? He could make your school life very difficult if he decides he doesn't like you. And a piece of himself which Harry didn't much like, but couldn't quite manage to silence, was pondering the potential advantages of being one of the few friends of this mad old wizard who also happened to be headmaster, chief warlock, and supreme mugwump. And unfortunately, his inner Slytherin seemed to be much better than Draco at turning people to the dark side, because it was saying things like, Poor fellow, he looks like he needs someone to talk to, doesn't he? And, You wouldn't want such a powerful man to end up trusting someone less virtuous, would you? And, I wonder what sort of incredible secrets Dumbledore could tell you if, you know, you became friends with him. And even, I bet he's got a really interesting book collection. You're all a bunch of lunatics, Harry thought at the entire assemblage, but he'd been unanimously outvoted by every component part of himself. Harry turned, took a step toward the open door, reached out, and deliberately closed it again. It was a costless sacrifice given that he was staying anyway. Dumbledore could control his movements regardless, but maybe it would impress Dumbledore. When Harry turned back around, he saw that the powerful, insane wizard was once more smiling and looking friendly. That was good, maybe. Please don't do that again, Harry said. I don't like being trapped. I am sorry about that, Harry, said Dumbledore in what sounded like tones of sincere apology. But it would have been terribly unwise to let you leave without your father's rock. Of course, 
It wasn't reasonable of me to expect the door to open before I put the quest items in my inventory. Dumbledore smiled and nodded. Harry went over to the desk, twisted his mokeskin pouch up around to the front of his belt, and, with some effort, managed to heave up the rock in his eleven-year-old arms and feed it in. He could actually feel the weight slowly diminishing as the widening lip charm ate the rock, and the burp which followed was rather noisy and had a distinctly complaining sound to it. His mother's fifth-year potions textbook, which held a secret that was in fact pretty terrible, followed shortly after. And then, Harry's inner Slytherin made a sly suggestion for ingratiating himself with the headmaster, which unfortunately had been perfectly pitched in such a way as to gain the support of the majority Ravenclaw faction. So, Harry said, um, as long as I'm hanging around, I don't suppose you would like to give me a bit of a tour of your office. I'm a bit curious as to what some of these things are. And that was his understatement for the month of September. Dumbledore gazed at him and then nodded with a slight grin. I am flattered by your interest, but I am afraid there isn't much to say. Dumbledore took a step closer to the wall and pointed to a painting of a sleeping man. These are the portraits of the past headmasters at Hogwarts. He turned and pointed to his desk. This is my desk. He pointed to his chair. This is my chair. Excuse me, actually I was wondering about those. Harry pointed to a small cube that was softly whispering, Blorple, blorple, blorple. Oh, the little fiddly things. They came with the headmaster's office, and I have absolutely no idea what most of them do. Although this dial, with the eight hands, counts the number of, let's call them sneezes, by the left-handed witches within the borders of France, you would not believe how much work it took to nail that down. And this one, with the golden wibblers, is my own invention, and Minerva is never ever going to figure out what that one does. Dumbledore took a step over to the hat rack while Harry was still processing this. Here, of course, we have the sorting hat. I believe the two of you have met. It told me that it was never again to be placed on your head under any circumstances. You're only the fourteenth student in history it is said that about. Baba Yaga was another one, and I'll tell you about the other twelve when you're older. This is an umbrella. This is another umbrella. Dumbledore took another few steps and turned around, now smiling quite broadly. And of course, most people who come to my office want to see Fox. Dumbledore was standing next to the bird on the golden platform. Harry came over, rather puzzled. This is Fox. Fox is a phoenix. Very rare, very powerful magical creatures. Ah... He lowered his head and stared into the tiny, beady black eyes, which showed not the slightest sign of power or intelligence. Uh... He was pretty sure he recognized the shape of the bird. It was pretty hard to miss. Um... Say something intelligent, Harry's mind roared at itself. Don't just stand there sounding like a gibbering moron. Well, what the heck am I supposed to say? Harry's mind fired back. Anything. You mean anything besides Fox is a chicken? Yes, anything but that. So, uh, what sort of magic do phoenixes do then? Their tears have the power to heal. They are creatures of fire and move between all places as easily as fire may extinguish itself in one place and be kindled in another. The tremendous strain of their innate magic ages their bodies quickly. 
and yet they are as close to undying as any creature that exists in this world, for whenever their bodies fail them, they immolate themselves in a burst of flame and leave behind a hatchling, or sometimes an egg. Dumbledore came closer and inspected the chicken, frowning. Hmm, looking a little peaky there, I'd say. By the time the statement registered fully in Harry's mind, the chicken was already on fire. The chicken's beak opened, but it didn't have time for so much as a single caw before it began to wither and char. The blaze was brief, intense, and entirely self-contained. There was no smell of burning. And then the fire died down only seconds after it had begun, leaving behind a tiny, pathetic heap of ashes on the golden platform. Don't look so horrified, Harry. Fox hasn't been hurt. Dumbledore's hand dipped into a pocket, and then the same hand sifted through the ashes and turned up a small yellowish egg. Look, here's an egg. Oh, wow. Amazing. But now we really should get on with things. Leaving the egg behind in the ashes of the chicken, he returned to his throne and seated himself. It's almost time for dinner, after all, and we wouldn't want to have to use our time-turners. There was a violent power struggle going on in the government of Harry. Slytherin and Hufflepuff had switched sides after seeing the headmaster of Hogwarts set fire to a chicken. Yes, things, said Harry's lips, and then dinner. You're sounding like a gibbering moron again, observed Harry's internal critic. Well, I fear I have a confession to make, Harry. A confession and an apology. Apologies are good. That doesn't even make sense. What am I talking about? The old wizard sighed deeply. You may not still think so after understanding what I have to say. I'm afraid, Harry, that I've been manipulating you your entire life. It was I who consigned you to the care of your wicked step-parents. My step-parents aren't wicked. My parents, I mean. They aren't, said Dumbledore, looking surprised and disappointed. Not even a little wicked? That doesn't fit the pattern. Harry's inner Slytherin screamed at the top of its mental lungs, Shut up, you idiot! He'll take you away from them! No, no, said Harry, lips frozen in a ghastly grimace. I was just trying to spare your feelings. They're actually very wicked. They are? Dumbledore leaned forward, gazing at him intently. What do they do? Talk fast. They, uh, I have to do dishes and wash math problems, and they don't let me read a lot of books, and... Ah, uh, good. That's good to hear, said Dumbledore, leaning back again. He smiled in a sad sort of way. I apologize for that, then. Now, where was I? Ah, yes. I'm sorry to say, Harry, that I am responsible for virtually everything bad that has ever happened to you. I know that this will probably make you very angry. Yes, I'm very angry. Grrr! Harry's internal critic promptly awarded him the all-time award for the worst acting in the history of ever. And I just wanted to let you know. I wanted to tell you as early as possible, in case something happened to one of us later, that I am truly, truly sorry. For everything that has already happened, and everything that will. Moisture glistened in the old wizard's eyes. And I'm very angry! So angry that I want to leave right now unless you've got something else to say. Just go before he sets you on fire, shrieked Slytherin, Hufflepuff, and Gryffindor. I understand. One last thing then, Harry. 
you are not to attempt the forbidden door on the third floor corridor. There is no possible way you could get through all the traps, and I wouldn't want to hear that you've been hurt trying. Why, I doubt that you could so much as open the first door, since it's locked, and you don't know the spell, Alamora. Harry spun around and bolted for the exit at top speed. The doorknob turned agreeably in his hand, and then he was racing down the spiral stairs even as they turned, his feet almost stumbling over themselves. In just a moment he was at the bottom, and the gargoyle was walking aside, and Harry fired out of the stairwell like a cannonball. Harry Potter There must have been something about Harry Potter. It was Thursday for everyone, after all, and yet this sort of thing didn't seem to happen to anyone else. It was 6.21 p.m. on Thursday afternoon when Harry Potter, firing out of the stairwell like a cannonball and accelerating at top speed, ran directly into Minerva McGonagall as she was turning a corner on her way to the headmaster's office. Thankfully, neither of them were much hurt. As had been explained to Harry a little earlier in the day, back when he was refusing to go anywhere near a broomstick again, Quidditch needed solid iron bludgers just to stand a decent chance of injuring the players, since wizards tended to be a lot more resistant than muggles to impacts. Harry and Professor McGonagall did both end up on the floor, and the parchments she had been carrying went all over the corridor. There was a terrible, terrible pause. Harry Potter, breathed Professor McGonagall from where she was lying on the floor right next to Harry. Her voice rose to nearly a shriek. What were you doing in the headmaster's office? Nothing. Were you talking about the defense, Professor? No. Dumbledore called me up there, and he gave me this big rock, and said it was my father's, and I should carry it everywhere. There was another terrible pause. I see, said Professor McGonagall, her voice a little calmer. She stood up, brushed herself off, and glared at the scattered parchments, which jumped into a neat stack and scurried back along the corridor wall as though to hide from her gaze. My sympathies, Mr. Potter, and I apologize for doubting you. Professor McGonagall, Harry said. His voice was wavering. He pushed himself off the floor, stood, and looked up at her trustworthy, sane face. Professor McGonagall? Yes, Mr. Potter? Do you think I should? Carry my father's rock everywhere? Professor McGonagall sighed. That is between you and the headmaster, I'm afraid. She hesitated. I will say that ignoring the headmaster completely is almost never wise. I am sorry to hear of your dilemma, Mr. Potter. And if there's any way I can help you with whatever you decide to do... Um, actually, I was thinking that once I know how, I could transfigure the rock into a ring and wear it on my finger. If you could teach me how to sustain a transfiguration... It is good that you asked me first, Professor McGonagall said, her face growing a bit stern. If you lost control of the transfiguration, the reversal would cut off your finger, and probably rip your hand in half. And at your age... Even a ring is too large a target for you to sustain indefinitely without it being a serious drain on your magic. But I can have a ring forged for you with a setting for a jewel, a small jewel, in contact with your skin, and you can practice sustaining a safe subject, like a marshmallow. When you have kept it up successfully, even in your sleep, for a full month, I will allow you to transfigure, ah, uh, your father's rock. Professor McGonagall's voice trailed off. Did the headmaster really? Yes. Professor McGonagall sighed. That's a bit strange, even for him. 
She stooped and picked up the stack of parchments. I'm sorry about this, Mr. Potter. I apologize again for mistrusting you. But now it's my own turn to see the headmaster. Uh, good luck, I guess. Um... Thank you, Mr. Potter. Um... Professor McGonagall walked over to the gargoyle, inaudibly spoke the password, and stepped through into the revolving spiral stairs. She began to rise out of sight, and the gargoyle started back. Professor McGonagall, the headmaster set fire to a chicken! He what? End Chapter 17 Thank you to the following people. Minerva McGonagall, read by Autumn Rachel Dryden. Dumbledore, Drake Walker. Professor Phileas Flitwick, by Francis Whitesell. This chapter's original text, production notes, and attribution links, along with archives and much more, can be found at hpmorpodcast.com. If you would like to learn more about the art of rationality, please visit lesswrong.com, an online community of aspiring rationalists founded by Eliezer Yudkowsky. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. The music used is Catch That Goblin by Skaven. Thank you for listening, and come back next week for the first half of Chapter 18, Dominance Hierarchies. 